1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 22. Hear now the reading of God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I, I imply that pagans sacrifice, that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we then provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. I told you last week that we are in the middle of a series of dangerous sermons for Christians. Beginning all the way back in chapter 8, Paul addressed our Christian liberty. What are we free to do? What do we have the right to do? But he said there in chapter 8, that's not all we can consider. We need to also ask, don't we, what would love do? Because to enjoy our liberties, to enjoy our rights, but do so at the expense of another brother or another sister is to destroy that one's conscience. What would love do? 
Last week in chapter 9, we saw that he gave himself as an example. He goes, listen, I do this too. I have the right to demand from you that you provide for me as I provide you with the gospel. But I don't press for my rights because I know that that may cause many of you to stumble. And so I'm happy to work the night shift, tanning hides and building tents so that there would be no obstacle put in the place of the gospel. Well, here in chapter 10, he is going to say that there are some times, though, when our Christian freedoms cross a line, and they cross a line into idolatry. There's a tension here at the beginning of this section in chapter 8, and a tension here in chapter 10. At both ends, one begins the section, the other ends the section. You are, as he said in chapter 8, free in Christ to eat meat that is sacrificed to idols. Only here in chapter 10, don't commit idolatry. Well, how do we know when we've crossed that line? How do we know when our freedom in Christ has leaked over into idolatry? And how do we flee it? That's Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 10. You may have picked up on some of that as we read. As he draws from Old Testament examples of Israel and their worship, he applies it to to this church in Corinth, and the Holy Spirit applies it to us today, many thousands of years later. There's a couple things that I want you to observe. First of all, we've really got two main points. He's going to say in verses 1 through 13, you see that there opening up in verse 1? I don't want you to be unaware, he says. The first point is this, be aware. Privileged people can fall. Privileged people can fall. If you're following along in your outline on the back of the bulletin, you notice that Paul's logic looks a little something like this. Like Israel, you too are privileged, church. But Israel, who is privileged, they fell. So then take heed that you don't fall too. That's the first half of the sermon. The second half of the sermon is this. Therefore, knowing that privileged people can fall, flee from idolatry. He's going to give us an example in the Lord's Supper. And then he's going to ask us, I think, not literally, but The passage itself poses to us a kind of hypothetical question, and that is, do we pass the participation test? So we might hold that in our minds for just a moment as we get to that toward the end of the passage. Paul's going to make his argument as we go. Well, if you were to ask, or if I were to ask you, what part of the Old Testament are you like, or would you like to be like? There might be all kinds of good examples. Boy, I would love to be like Daniel. He was like the 007 of of the Old Testament, going subversive, undercover for his Lord and for the blessing of Babylon. Maybe somebody like that. Or maybe Joseph, who endured in trial and was exalted to the second highest place in Egypt. Oh, man, wouldn't that be great to be like a Joseph? Not maybe to go through what he went through, but if it produces that kind of fruit, that kind of life, amen, I'm all in. I'm sure these Corinthian believers would have said something like, you know, I don't know. They are like the temple in Solomon's day in all of its glory. You remember back in chapter 4, they said, already we have everything. Already we're rich. Already we're kings. Aren't we the best church that ever was? They had a very high view of themselves. Well, in verses 1 through, Paul, 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul is going to say, well, let me take you back to the Old Testament, and I want to show you what you're really like. 
And it may not be what you expect. He says, first of all, that Israel was deeply privileged just like you are, church. Verse 1 says that they were under the cloud. They weren't oppressed, but they were secure. Also, notice at the end of verse 1, they all passed through the sea. They were redeemed by God's mighty arm. But then he keeps going in verse 2. He says, all of them were baptized, and all of them ate the same spiritual food. They were baptized as they passed through the sea. The spiritual food is that food that he gave, manna from heaven and water from a rock. I want to get technical for just a second, so follow along with me. Here what Paul's doing is he's using what's called typology to teach the Bible. What is typology? A type, T-Y-P-E, a type is any person, any event, or any institution that we find in the Old Testament that escalates into a fulfillment and what we might call an antitype. The New Testament puts it like this. Types are like shadows that give us a hint, an idea, albeit in mystery form, of a greater reality. The antitype is the substance. It's the thing itself, the thing that the type all along has been pointing to. Let me show you what Paul's doing. When he says in verse 2 that Israel was baptized into Moses, he's implying something greater. He says, but you, you were baptized into Christ. They ate manna in the wilderness and got water miraculously from a rock, but these were shadows of a greater meal in Christ. You eat bread and you drink wine at the Lord's Supper at his table. Israel experienced Christ's abiding presence by a cloud, protecting them and guiding them, but now Christ dwells not only among you, but in you through his Holy Spirit. No, that old covenant was the shadow, but you and the new covenant, that is the substance. That's the good stuff. Under the old covenant, Israel was a privileged people, but he says, you, you are an even more privileged people. You're more privileged in every possible way. But then a question lingers from these first four verses. Can God's people enjoy God's privilege and then live however they want? Are they free to do whatever they want, whenever they want, regardless of the circumstances? Well, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, no way. Consider the Israelites in the wilderness. He says, they were similar to you in every way. They were a privileged people. They enjoyed God's presence, his protection, his provision. And yet, in spite of their privileged status, verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Notice Paul's language, verses one through four. How many of them do we see here were privileged? Do you see that? He repeats all over and over again. All of them were privileged. And yet in spite of that, in verse five, he says most of them, not all of them, but most of them, Among those who were privileged, most of them were overthrown. Well, a quick read through Numbers reveals that most of them ultimately will include all but two of that first wilderness generation. Most means out of the hundreds of thousands or more of the Israelites brought out of that, out of Egypt, of that first generation, most of them means the entire generation save two people. Only two over the age of 20 survived. 
that phrase, were overthrown, can either mean that God was the one that overthrew them or that their own sin and rebellion overthrew them. Either way, they were overthrown. And they remained in the wilderness for 40 years until most of them died without ever stepping foot into the promised land as God had promised. They never saw it, or they saw it, but they never stepped foot in it. And so you want to talk about a hot mess, you just need to read through the book of Numbers and take a look at that wilderness generation. They were privileged in every way. Paul says, privileged just like you were. They had God's promises. They had God's abiding presence. They had God's protection and provision. And yet, in spite of all of these privileges, they were still a spiritual disaster. And so Paul tells this proud congregation Yeah, that's you. That's who you are. That's what you're like. And then in verses 6 through 11, the Apostle Paul takes them to Bible study. Follow along with the Apostle in verse 6. He's going to make an extraordinary comment about the nature and the purpose of the Scriptures. Just glance through that as you do. The Old Testament, as we see here in verse 6, is but a glimpse of Israel's history. It's, a, it's really a glimpse of a glimpse. Not everything that Israel ever did is written in the Old Testament scriptures, but only those events, those moments, those teachings, those mistakes that God the Holy Spirit thought was most important to inscripturate for our instruction. Paul tells us these things. These things are speaking of Israel's sins as well as God's judgment. He says, these things all took place as examples for us. Sometimes Israel and their faith is an example of what we should do, but sometimes in this regard, Israel's sins are examples of what we should avoid. And I want you to notice here, just as you glance through the handful of verses that follow, that the Apostle Paul is not embarrassed by the hardest parts of the Bible. He doesn't try to sanitize it or or make any kind of apology for God. Oh, that's just the God of the Old Testament. But we're New Testament Christians. We worship a God of love, not a God of wrath, some might say. Now, the God who reveals himself in the Old Testament is none other than the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ. There is no other God. And that same God who is good to judge Israel for being unfaithful to him, well, he's good to judge us too if we do the same. That's Paul's point. Because we don't exist in a casual relationship with God. He's the unchanging creator and judge of the entire world. And so he never at any point clocks out from being God just to go hang out and let loose with his people once in a while. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm taking my boss hat off for now. We're all just the same. He can't do that. God is God all the time. He can't ever un-God himself. There's all kinds of things that God can't do, and one of the things that he can't do is un-God himself. And he's a jealous God. What do I mean by that? We see that all the way down in verse 22. Should we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Does that mean that God gets jealous maybe the way that a a fitful teenager might get jealous when somebody else gets the boy or the girl that they're interested in? Is that what it's talking about? That he's a pouty, self-pitiable, kind of emotionally volatile kind of God? No, that's not what it's talking about. What does it mean when it's talking about the jealousy of God? It means this, that God loves his own glory above everything. 
God cannot love anything greater than himself or that would be idolatrous. And so God cannot love or be concerned for anything over and above his own glory for that would be a lesser love. And he chose to give his glory to his people in the context of a covenant. That's why God is so often referred to in the scriptures as a husband. And his people are so often referred to as a bride that he wed his glory to us and we belong to him for the sake of his glory. And he can't share it with anyone or anything else. And if we attempt to share his glory with anything or anyone else, then he is jealous for his glory. You say, well, that kind of God seems awfully fragile, doesn't he? Look at Paul's examples in verses 7 through 10. And you tell me if God has a right to be jealous. There in verse 7, we see that the Apostle Paul recounts the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. Moses went on in the mountain to receive God's law, and while he was gone, speaking face to face with the Lord who had just redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, while he was gone, talking face to face, enjoying communion with the Lord, Israel, in Moses' absence, fashions from gold, a calf, and worships it. This is the Lord, the leader said. This is the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. And then they held a festival, and they, and they offered sacrifices to this idol. And the Bible says in Exodus 32, verse 6, he says the, that, quote, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You see in your Bible, you might see a cross-reference for Exodus 32, 6, on that quote in verse 7. But I want you to notice that word to play, it doesn't mean that they, that they ate their lunch and then they had recess on a playground or they got in a good game of ultimate in the wilderness. That's not what it means by play. That word denotes a religiously heightened sexual orgy. They're all fully bought into the religious practices of those around them. At the foot of the mountain where God's presence is dwelling with Moses, so I'd have you just for a moment imagine a wedding day. The groom is busy with all the final details for the ceremony whereby he's going to make a covenant with his bride. And he finds his bride-to-be committing heinous acts of adultery in the bride's room right before the ceremony. And the ones to whom he had entrusted her, the ones who are supposed to care for her and lead her, her attendants as it were, they are the ones that encouraged her to do it. And that's exactly what we have at the foot of Sinai. Would you be angry if you were that groom? Or would you just throw up your hands and say, oh, it doesn't really matter as long as my name's on the certificate. I don't really care who she's with. You go, no, that's a foolish husband. It is good and righteous for that husband in that moment to be jealous for the affections of his would-be wife the affections that she gives to someone else, the loyalty and allegiance that she gives to someone else. He doesn't want to share her. And so God, in Exodus 32, calls them corrupt. He says they've turned aside, that they're stiff-necked. We see that God's angry about sin. His jealousy is a holy jealousy. 
He glorified himself in Israel and Israel gave his glory to another. And so God told Moses, I want a divorce. Some of that was leading Moses and fashioning him him into being a leader. And Moses interceded for the people and God relented. But listen, if you've been around for recent weeks, then you'll notice that Paul chose a bit of that story from Israel's past that's closest to the situation in Corinth. In Corinthian society, everything revolved around worshiping stuff made with gold. Community life required you to go to the sacrifices to sit down and eat and drink at their altars, or even as we just saw back in chapter 8, even arise up and play to engage in sexual immorality as an act of worship. We saw all of this, didn't we, in previous chapters. He says that if you go to the temples in Corinth and you worship those other gods, you're just like Israel with the golden calf. You are being unfaithful to God and you are provoking him to jealousy. And just as he was right to be angry with Israel, he would be right to be angry with you. And so what happened then? What happened to that entire generation of privileged people in the the wilderness because of their adultery? They never stepped foot in the promised land, and God made sure of it. So Paul says in verse 7, is that what you want? Do you want that kind of bride to be that kind of bride who publicly takes God's name but then fails to enter his rest? Now God has rescued and redeemed you for so much more than that. Well, then he says in verse 8, don't, quote, indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And so here Paul recalls another incident from Israel's history, an incident from the book of Numbers. Israel's enemies weren't able to beat Israel in a normal way. And so in Numbers chapter 25, they didn't send in the soldiers to take over Israel. They sent in the pretty dancing girls. And these priestesses of Baal likely said something like, why don't you come to us, come into us, and you can worship our God. And the men of Israel said, that sounds pretty good to us. And that's exactly what they did. And so they sat down to eat and they drank and they rose up to play. That is, they engaged in sexual immorality in Peor with the Baal. And what was the result? What was the consequence for their unfaithfulness for provoking the Lord to holy jealousy in verse 8? 23,000 fell in a single day. You say, oh, yeah, 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 but that was the angry God of the Old Testament. Jesus is all about love and forgiveness. No, friend, the Lord Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. Full of grace and mercy, yes and amen. But he's also the one, according to Revelation 19, 15, who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. When you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, does that image ever come into your mind? Full of grace and mercy, yes, he is a redeemer, but according to verses 9 and 10, he is also a destroyer. Read that with me, verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by servants, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The Israelites were in the wilderness for a while, right? So even so, they were even though they were in the wilderness, and even though life was sometimes hard, and they had to wait on the Lord, not knowing how long they were going to be in there, even though they saw their enemies and and fretted over their size and their power, even in spite of all of that, they were immensely privileged by God's provision. Isn't that what we just saw in verses 3 and 4? 
He gave them water from a rock, and that rock apparently followed them from the beginning of their wanderings in Exodus 17 to the end in Numbers 20. He made bread rain down from sky every day, and he provided the flock of quail. And I don't know what it is about these quail. They're just like ridiculously tame quail, the kind of quail that you can just walk up and grab and kill and eat. You don't even have to chase them, it seems. In all of these ways, God is providing for his people. But instead of being happy with this kind of miraculous wilderness supermarket, they say, and listen to their words, why have you brought us out to Egypt to die in the wilderness? Get this, for there is no food and there is no water. We loathe this worthless food that you've given us. It's not good enough. They're just like many of our own kids that walk into the fridge late at night and they sit there and they stare at it for five minutes and we go, what are you looking for? And they go, I don't know, there's nothing to eat. So there's all kinds of things to eat in there. You can have carrots, as my wife says, have all the carrots you want. No, the point isn't that there's not anything to eat. The point is that I don't want to eat that stuff. I don't want to eat what we have in our fridge. Give me some chocolate. That's what I want, not carrots. Well, in this, Paul says that they were putting Christ to the test. He was the rock that followed them. He was the one that provided for them. Back up in verses three and four, glance at that. When they grumbled against their food and their drink, they grumbled against Christ. And verse 10 says that this is where they crossed the line. They grumbled against their redeemer and their redeemer became their destroyer. And so Paul says in verse 11, you're at the risk of being just like them. You're in dangerous territory, tempted in all the same ways. That's why God gave them to you and beloved to us as our example. They're an example to us that we might be instructed by them. And so in a sense, the Corinthian believers have been redeemed from idolatry in Egypt and and now these believers are being tested in the wilderness, so to speak, on their way to heaven. But as we noted before in earlier chapters, looking over their shoulder, well, that was a constant temptation. Temple interactions were a part of community life. And so in many instances, one's livelihood depended upon going with the flow. One's ability to trade in the market and to make a living depended on being part of this, that, or the other guild of Zeus or going to the annual sacrifices such that to not participate in them would be to undermine or offend your customers or to not have the kinds of perks or inside access that one would normally have. And so it seems then from Paul's example that they were grumbling from Paul and his teaching. Now this gospel that you're preaching and this being set apart for holiness it's too hard. It demands too much. It's asking us to give up too much. That if we can't join in on temple worship, then that's the end of our life in Corinth. That's the end of our position in society. It's the end of our comfort. It's the end of the things that we've grown up enjoying, that we've loved so much for so many years. Well, Paul says, you are just like Israel in the wilderness. And you look around at your former life in Corinth and you go, why can't we just go back to Egypt. Wouldn't that be so much better? Being a Christian is so hard. Why didn't anybody tell us it was going to be so hard like this? The temptations, the putting sin to death and holiness. Wouldn't it just be so much easier to go back to our old way of life? Maybe just once in a while. 
So Paul says, you want better food and you want a better life. You want a better leader, just like Israel wanted a better leader. It's going to lead you someplace else, somewhere you prefer to go, not where God wants you to go. And every time you step foot in the temple for your career-enhancing worship service, you are putting Christ to the test. That's what he's saying. And he says, and much like you, church, Israel seemed to assume that their privileges gave them license to think and speak and act however they wanted and that nothing would happen. Only here's the deal. He says in verse 11, you are those on whom the end of the ages has come. You are more privileged in Christ than Israel ever was in Moses. You have a greater revelation of the gospel in Christ, a greater revelation of God's purposes for his church in the world than they ever knew. Consider how high the stakes are. If they were high for Israel, how much higher are they for you? Remember when we talked through the book of, when I preached the book of Hebrews, this was a theme that came up over and over and over again. Do not drift from the gospel. Don't go back. Fix your eyes on Christ. So the stakes are high, which is why he says in verse 12, therefore, on account of the example that Israel has set, verses six through 11, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Some of the puffed up members of this church thought that they'd stand no matter what they did. They needed to take heed, Paul says, of Israel's example. Are you relying on your baptism, perhaps? Verse two, didn't help Israel. Are you relying on eating bread and and drinking wine of coming to the Lord's Supper merely? Well, look, verses three and four, that didn't help them either. Are you relying on a prayer that you prayed years ago? Well, you don't think that Israel prayed some prayers in the wilderness? And look how they ended up. You may think that these and other privileges will cause you to stand, but no. Listen, beloved, apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ and the indwelling power of the Spirit, you will ultimately fall. And so where is your trust? On what are you ultimately standing, Christ or something else? Beloved, it's right here that you and I need to stop and we need to pay attention because verse 12 gives one of the most clear warnings in all of the Bible. It's clear on the one hand because it says no matter what's on your Christian resume of who you are or what you've done, it doesn't matter how much you've enjoyed the outward privileges of belonging to God's people. If you're trying to worship two gods, you are in big time spiritual danger. But it's also clear because the kind of Christian it's addressing. I want you to notice here, Paul's not addressing the doubtful Christian the believer who perhaps struggles with having assurance of their salvation, the one who wonders if, who thinks almost daily that they've offended God beyond their own redemption, that God's gonna give up on them. No, that's not who Paul is addressing here. And so if you're one of those, do not become overly burdened and overly introspective on verse 12. No, Paul here is addressing the overly confident person, the presumptuous professing Christian, the one who says, I'm going to stand no matter what I do, even if my idolatry bears the fruit of sexual immorality or bears the fruit of a loveless Christianity, in a matter, I'm going to stand. And so Paul's addressing the proud person. He's addressing the person that presumes upon their privileges, one who functions in a kind of open marriage, as it were, with God. 
free to do whatever, free to see whatever God I want to see as long as I ultimately come home to Jesus at the end of the day. Well, concerning the privileged but presumptuous, grace-abusing person in verse 12, Paul says this is what ultimately happens to such presumptuous, privileged people. Verse 5, they were overthrown. Verse 8, they fell. Verses 9 and 10, they were destroyed. So he says, you need to be warned. Take heed, he says. This is the fate of spiritually privileged people who presume to stand but persist in provoking the Lord to jealousy by their idolatry. But I want you to notice verse 12, if that's God's grace to the proud to make them humble, then in verse 13 we have God's grace to the humble to help them endure. No temptation, he says, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptations, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God knows how you're tempted, and he is faithful to help you by providing wisdom to escape it and strength to endure it. The ability to escape any temptation may at least mean two things. First, it may mean that God will provide a path out of tempting situations. It may mean that when sin is tempting you to go left, God is always opening a way for you to go right toward righteousness' sake. Well, that's certainly true. I think that's one way to take the verse. I wouldn't disagree with you if that's how you took it. But it may also mean, and this may be a more fundamental way to understand the passage, is that by giving you a way out, we focus on that word ability. That the strength to endure and escape temptations to sin, even when temptations seem unrelenting, comes not ultimately in your own strength, but by the power of Christ in you. How many of us aim to wage war against sin in our own strength? Grow weary from temptation and try to flee it in our own strength? How many of us become increasingly prayerless as we face temptation and we grow increasingly weary as a result. Now verse 13 is a lifeline to the humble because there are all kinds of other gods that you and I are gonna be tempted to worship all the time, whether it be the God of success and wealth or sex and pleasure or perhaps even other spiritualities or religions, whatever it is, Christ in you will strengthen you and give you the wisdom that you need in every single instance without exception to escape temptation. He never takes a moment off. He's never caught sleeping like the false gods of the Old Testament that the prophets often mocked. He's never, he's never laying down on the job. God, where were you when I was trying to escape that temptation? Oh, pfft, fell asleep, sorry. Or like by all, I was sitting on the toilet. It's what, I, it's what Elijah Remember? Anyways, we don't need to go there. <laughs> Holy Spirit inspired prophetic potty humor by Elijah. Beloved, insofar as you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who bears you up in the power of Christ, you can always say no to sin.
Sin does not own you. You are not a slave to sin anymore. It has no dominion over you. Before Christ, it would tell you to jump and you'd say, how high? Now it has no authority over you whatsoever because you are in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus Christ purchased your freedom. You belong to him now. You were bought with a price and he lives in you through his indwelling Holy Spirit and that means that God, if you are in Christ by faith, is forever with you and he is forever untiringly, tirelessly. Is that even a word, tirelessly? I was gonna be so poetic. It means that he's forever with you and he is forever for you. So listen, you and I are going to be tempted like Israel all the time on this side of heaven. Paul says in verse 13 that temptation is common. It's ordinary. This is what the ordinary Christian life looks like on this side of heaven is to be tempted toward giving our allegiances to false gods and false spiritualities. But the ordinariness of temptation doesn't make it easy, does it? Living in the tensions of temptation is really, really hard sometimes, isn't it? Temptations can seem unrelenting and we can grow weary, can't we? Even the temptation to grumble, which is ultimately the sin beneath the sin, grumbling is beneath the sin of all apostasy in the Old Testament. We just want relief. We want things to get easier. And here's what sin says. Go ahead and give in. Just this once and you won't have to struggle anymore. That struggle is going to go away if you just give in. You see, if Christ was enough, sin says, then you wouldn't be struggling like this. So why don't you add this or that counterfeit spirituality to your Christianity? Why don't you add this or that ideology to your Christianity? Why don't you add this or that sinful indulgence to your Christianity? You're a privileged person. You'll get away with it. Beloved, listen to me, do not believe it. Those are hellish lies. You have no need to go outside of your marriage to Christ for anything ever. He has all that you need. He is utterly sufficient for you. Christ is enough You don't need anything other than Christ. You don't need anything in addition to Christ. You don't need anything more than Christ. And to live our lives as we do, well, that is the seed of idolatry. That's what the wilderness generation thought, and we're to take heed of their example. And so all you need, beloved, all you need to endure temptation, all you need to escape sin is in Christ through his spirit, in his word, that in him, God, according to verse 13, is faithful to you. And because of his covenant of grace, he must be faithful to you. He cannot do otherwise. Do you believe that? Beloved, God is so committed to you. It means that every single time you and I sin, we just don't believe him. That all that we need in Christ through his spirit is ours. And we need to be brought back time and again, humbled to 
rest in Christ just as we received him by faith. Well, that encouragement in verse 13 of the sufficiency of Christ forms the backdrop of Paul's exhortation in verse 14. He says, therefore, therefore, my beloved, because of verse 13, flee from idolatry. Therefore, because of what happened to Israel, flee idolatry. You realize that's really what's in view in this chapter. It's not sin in general, though it may be true, maybe broadly, but really what's in scope here is idolatry. But what exactly is idolatry? How do we define it? How do we know whether we've crossed that line? He says, I speak to sensible people. I'm gonna leave it up to you to judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, you're gonna need wisdom. You're gonna want me to tell you what is what, what is black, what is white, what is what is right and what is wrong, but I'm not gonna do that because you need biblical wisdom to navigate these things and you're an understanding people. You're a sensible people. You've been given the Holy Spirit and so take these things that I'm gonna share, help one another to walk in wisdom in the world. But this idea of fleeing idolatry, boy, as I already mentioned, that's not as easy as you would think in Corinth. It was, as I already said, it was woven in every aspect of community life. This means that fleeing idolatry in Corinth, maybe fleeing into the proverbial wilderness, away from what's comfortable, away from what's familiar, and that's really hard. Well, today we might say, for instance, wealth can be idolatry. And that's really biblical because you and I can't serve two masters, can we? God and money. Wealth cannot be worshipped, or wealth can be worshipped, rather but it ought not be worshiped. And so our entire life, for instance, can be spent on getting it or it can be spent on spending it. We'll destroy relationships and we'll tear apart our family and friendships to get more of it. We'll leave Christ and his church for it, all the while saying, look at what a privileged Christian I am. Wealth can be idolatry. So Paul says, flee it. But how do we know if we've crossed the line from Christian freedom into idolatry? And is Paul contradicting himself here in his instructions to the Corinthians? Because you remember, as I mentioned earlier in chapter 8, Paul said that it's okay to go into the temple and eat as long as you don't damage the conscience of other Christians. When you do, that meat is just cow, and that statue of Zeus is just wood or stone. There's only one God, and that's not it. So how can we tell when we've crossed the line from Christian freedom, chapter 8, to idolatry, chapter 10. The litmus test is found in a repeated word in verses 16 through 21, and I want you to scan through the verses and see if you can identify it. Do you see it? It's repeated time and again. It's not demons. Verse 16, he twice mentions participation. Verse 17, partake. Verses 18 and 20, participants. Verse 21, partake. What is the line between Christian freedom, eating meat sacrificed to idols, for example, and outright idolatry? How did Israel cross that line? How do we know when we've crossed that line? The key to answering those difficult questions How do I know if I've gone into the temple, Paul, and I'm eating that cow from that altar given to that wooden statue, how do I know if I've crossed over from Christian freedom into idolatry? How can I know? And Paul says the key category for discerning whether you've crossed that line is this, participation. It's that Greek word koinonia, meaning fellowship, partnership, 
In verses 16 and 17, notice here that Paul's not going to give a dictionary definition. He's going to give a practical example to help them understand what he means by participation. He says in verses 16 and 17, this is what participation looks like. It's a good thing when done rightly. Look at this, verse 16, the cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a koinonia in the, blood, in the body of Christ? And so Paul says, when we think of participation in light of what we do, when we come to the Lord's Supper, then we get somewhat of an idea of Paul's meaning and when we cross that line from Christian freedom into idolatry. Because at the table, we identify ourselves, don't we? I am of Christ. He is my God and Redeemer, and these are my people. This is where my loyalties lie, such that if anything else threatens these loyalties, Christ and the church wins and those things lose. But even more than that, verse 16 tells us that when we eat, we participate in Christ in two ways. First of all, we notice that there's a spiritual benefit to it. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That as we eat and drink, believing upon the atoning work of Christ for us, we participate in the benefits of Jesus' death. It doesn't mean that every time we come to the Lord's Supper, he's crucified again. No, we would consider the Roman mass to be heretical. It doesn't mean when we come to the Lord's Supper that we need to be forgiven of our sins all over again as if it's never happened. That's not what we mean. But it does mean that we come humbly to the table acknowledging all of the ways this week in which we've been tempted to fool around with other gods behind God's back this week as if he doesn't know. As with money, for example, or anything else then we come not only seeking God's forgiveness, but being assured by what we see and taste in the supper that if we are in Christ, we participate in the benefits of his blood and he is faithful and just to forgive us. Amen? But here's another way that we participate. Verse 16, is it not also a participation in the body of Christ? We eat the meal with him. We eat the meal with him as he dwells in us through his spirit. Where we go, he goes. Remember that back from chapter six? Where we are, he is there with us. And this gets to the idea of participation that at the supper, the Lord is our host. We draw near by faith in the spirit and he feeds our faith with himself through his word as it accompanies the supper. And so here Paul brilliantly begins to begins with an example of how good it is to enjoy communion, to participate together in our Savior and all of his saving benefits, to participate in him, to identify with him, to seek spiritual benefit from him. And so given that positive example then, now we've got kind of a a practical example as Christians who take the Lord's Supper of what Paul means by participation in light of that example, verses 18 to 22 The text is essentially going to ask us, do we pass then when we leave from here the participation test? In verses 18 and following, he wants us to ask, do we pass it? Do we pass the participation test? Because when you you and I join in the sacrifice of an idol, you're participating there too. This is where my loyalties lie. This is my God. These are my people. This is what I'm seeking over, above, and beyond Christ for my wellness, for my wholeness, for my happiness, 
and my holiness. Christ is not enough. Now notice in Paul, we've got to hold these in tension because in chapter 8, he says, now I'm not talking about the statue. For example, the golden calf is just a load of melted earrings. But Paul follows the Old Testament by teaching that behind those visible idols is a malevolent force, and he mentions them multiple times at the end of this passage, namely demons. That these demons are behind every idol, tempting to pervert Christian freedom into idolatry, tempting us away from Christ that we would trust in something or someone else for our wellness, wholeness, happiness, or holiness. So he says, those statues may just be wood and stone. They may not be real gods. There's only one God, but that doesn't mean that God is the only real spiritual being in the universe. The Bible talks about demons as real. They're less than God, and they're more like angels, but they're allowed by God to oppose him, at least for now, that he might test his saints and sanctify them, that he might prove his power over them in Christ. And one of the ways they do that is by saying, Come and worship something that you've made. Something you can control. To worship creator or creation rather than creator. And so to that he says in verse 22, shall we provoke then the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? In other words, if we give our loyalty and our faithfulness, if we commit ourselves to spiritual adultery as the bride of Christ, having a kind of open marriage with the Son of God, Do we think at the end of the age when he returns as a destroyer that we will stand in that day? Are you stronger than him? That's a harrowing statement. So this is the test. Is participation, what does that look like? Practically speaking in our own lives, what does that look like? It means, for instance... I'm just gonna use some practical examples. I can't exhaust all of them. It might even give rise to more questions that I'm able to answer in a sermon, but it'll be good conversations for us to have with Bibles open as we gather together in one another groups or fellowship groups or, or other kinds of hangouts. There was all kind of hubbub recently, you remember, about when Target ended up putting in the front of its stores during Pride Month displays and clothes that if you purchased it would go toward the supporting of, of various legislations and organizations that supported, uh, that supported LGBTQ plus causes. And, and some Christians said, well, if that's gonna be the case, you can't shop at Target anymore. And other Christians said, well, I'm free in Christ to shop at Target. And so which is it? Is it chapter eight, you're free in Christ to shop at Target? Is it chapter 10 to shop at Target? Maybe idolatry, which is it? And for Paul, it's both and. It could be either or. It depends. How do we know when we cross the line? The crossing of the line is participation. Is it participation to go into Target to buy a a gallon of milk? And am I supporting everything that Target supports? Well, listen, that's really difficult. That's a slippery slope. If you're trying to keep yourself unstained from the world in that sense, that's an impossible job. And you'll have to, you'll have to, withdraw from the world altogether. And then the problem with that is you take your own indwelling sin with you. What if I bought something from one of those racks, those rainbow-colored racks? Would that be participation? Now we're a lot closer to the line. What if I bought it because either secretly in my own heart or even publicly, though I name, 
the name of Christ. I believe that Christ is all about love. The Bible teaches nothing really about homosexuality. And that I think God is not against it, but for it. Now you've crossed the line into idolatry. This isn't just true of ideological and sinful things. This may also be true of spiritual things as well. And so a common thing that we talk about, for instance, that Christians like to talk about is can a Christian do, let's say, for instance, yoga? Oh, man, about to get all kinds of emails this week. Can Christians do yoga? According to 1 Corinthians 10, and the answer is depends. Depends. Are you free in Christ to downward dog? You can downward dog all day long if you want. Are you free in Christ to recognize that there are certain kinds of breathing exercises that may be helpful when it comes to anxiety and stress and things like that? Well, listen, we're embodied creatures. That may very well be the case. Are you aware that perhaps some of those breathing exercises are really attached and and are underpinned by other religious commitments? Like to empty your mind is to ultimately pursue the greatest task of escaping suffering in this life by becoming nothing. You realize how contrary that is to the Christian gospel. We don't empty our minds, we renew our minds. We take captive our thoughts. We don't empty them, we fill them with Christ. That there's a commitment that leads us away, that to center ourselves and to do other things. Does that make us perhaps dependent upon a kind of spirituality that we have latched onto the scriptures, that I need something in addition to Christ, alongside Christ, maybe I sprinkle it with Christ to sanctify it, and all of these ways we're getting closer to the line and may even cross it. We need to think really well about these and other things. When we go to homeopathic healers and we go to certain kinds of chiropractors that are, that are all up into, let's say, Eastern medicine, Do we need to be careful, for instance, about some of the commitments that some of those doctors or some of those websites may have? Yes, we do. Do we need to be careful, for instance, about the way that perhaps crystals might be used among some of those kinds of doctors for for helping and healing? We do. At what time do we cross that line? Do you identify with it? Do you have fellowship with it? Do you participate in it? Listen, there's nothing wrong with a crystal in and of itself. God created crystals and those are good. God created doctors. God created chiropractors. All those may be good. I'm not going to one. I don't want anybody touching me. But you get what I'm saying. There's Christian freedom in those things. But how do I know if I've crossed the line? What's that line? And the line as we talk amongst one another is always going to be participation. I identify myself with that thing in such a way that I would aim to get a kind of benefit from that thing above, apart from, in addition to Christ for the sake of my wellness, wholeness, happiness, and healing. I'm not talking about taking medicine for colds and having surgery. Please do not come to the pastor for brain surgery. Please go to a brain doctor. But you understand what I'm saying. 
That's the line. And Paul's towing it really closely here. That's why he says, you're sensible people. So how do I know? Well, if you relate to anything like that outside of Christ, that is anything like what we do when we come to the Lord's Supper, that is idolatry from which you need to repent. Israel didn't. And this is where they ended up. Beloved, what you need to know from here is not only the dangers of idolatry, the subtlety of demonic persuasion behind these things, but you need to understand also the sufficiency of Christ. All that you need for wellness, wholeness, happiness, and holiness is in Christ. And if you believe that, such that you would seek it nowhere else, then you can enjoy that piece of cow to the glory of God. As long as you don't cause another brother to stumble. Our freedoms then are constrained by two things, Paul says. Constrained in chapter eight by love. Constrained in chapter 10 by participation. We need to think much better than we typically do about this, don't we? That we might guard against being worldly people Friend, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you're investigating Christian things, I hope you see that what Christ is ultimately calling sinners to do, like you, is to turn from sin, to turn from other things that you've sought to, that you have trusted in and relied on for holiness, happiness, healing, and wellness. And to turn from those things and trust in Christ alone to provide them. That in every way he has earn for you the righteousness that you need to stand before God, the full forgiveness of all of your sins, and will completely, totally, and utterly heal and repair you when he comes again. You can trust in him. But to refuse him for the sake of these other so-called allegiances and loyalties, well then, friend, I've only got one question for you. When you stand before God at the end of the age, are you stronger than him? Trust in Christ. Let's pray.